Welcome to the Prophecy Club. We're not going to be posting a new video today or Monday. And the reason is because my editor needed a few days off, and frankly, I did too. So what we're going to do is to play the about the first 30 minutes of Exposing the Illuminati from Within by Bill Sneblin today. And then the next day, we'll play another 30 minutes of it. Now, I highly recommend you then go to WatchProphecyClub.com. And you want to sign up and get yourself a membership because there's like 330 DVDs that made over 25 years, uh, some $30,000 worth of DVDs. I don't know, maybe 50 or 60000 Anyway, uh, you get all of it for like 20 bucks a month or $200 a year. Of course, the best deal is $200 a year. Now, the reason I'm putting Bill Sneblin up today is because he was a vampire. No, <laughs> I'm not kidding. He was literally a vampire for two years. For two years, he lived off of human blood. He explains that. And he said that human blood is the most addictive substance on the planet. Once you start it, you can't get off of it. And he said, the only reason I was able to get off it because I called for the name of Jesus. And he said, and it gives you extreme strength, supernatural powers, all kinds of things, which of course fits in with what we've been saying in other areas. So let me tell you briefly about it. Exposing the Illuminati from within, Bill Snevelin was a satanic and voodoo high priest, second degree member of Church of Satan, New Age guru, occultist, channeler, 90th degree mason, Knight Templar, and a member of the Illuminati. And he shows how the conspiracy works, how it uses the large and the highest echelons of power and technology from secret black project operations to form a world government. Of the 130 guest speakers, of the 330 DVDs we made over 25 years, I'm going to rank this one in the top five. You do not want to miss it. Unfortunately, it is like five hours long, and you're only going to get two 30-minute segments so you're going to have to go to Watch Prophecy Club to get the rest of it. WatchProphecyClub.com. And now, Bill Sneblin exposing the Illuminati from within. When you look at the symbol that you see on the uh, great seal of this truncated pyramid, <clears throat> it is an expression of the satanic hierarchy, which I'll explain in a moment, but it's also a deliberate slap in the face of the Lord Yeshua. Let me explain why. Um, there's a very famous prophecy that Yeshua gives where he says in Matthew 21, I'm sorry, he talks first of all about the idea of the stone which the builder is rejecting becoming the headstone of the corner. Now that's a very strange expression. You know, I believe nothing in the Bible is left to chance. When you think about it, what is this stone that's the headstone of the corner. How can it be on a corner and be a headstone? We all know what a cornerstone is. It's on the corner of a building. But what is the headstone of a corner? Well, I would submit to you that the only way you can have a, an architectural structure that has a headstone of a corner is for it to be a pyramid. And Yeshua is the headstone of the corner of the pyramid. That is his rightful place. Now you'll notice that here they put this stupid all-seeing eye in there in its stead. Now let me explain this. 
See, there's a prophetic component here because Yeshua says this about this stone. He says in Matthew 21, 42, Did ye never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same as he come the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you, and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Now notice this. And whoever shall fall upon this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him into a powder. Now think about that. <clears throat> if he is the stone, which obviously that's the case without dispute, and he is, and the stone is a pyramid, think of it this way. What happens if you fall on a pyramid? It's got a sharp object on top and you break. What happens if a pyramid falls on you? <laughs> Squash, flat, you're ground to a powder. Now what that actually symbolizes on a deeper level, when we talked about the four levels of scripture, is that the first advent of the Lord involves us falling on him and being broken. In other words, being broken, having our hearts be broken, having our consciences be broken, so that we come to repentance, to teshuva, as it is in the Hebrew, and to receive Yeshua as Messiah, as our Savior and Lord. The second advent is he's coming and he's going to squash everybody flat that's wicked. So it's like the first one is more gentle because he's offering himself to us as our Savior. And if we fall on him and are broken, we can be saved. But the second time he comes, watch out. You know, if you aren't in the kingdom, you're going to be ground to a powder. And this fits so perfectly with the idea of the first and second advents of Yeshua. Now, by creating this frustrum, this, this truncated pyramid, they're falsely believing that they can prevent the stone from completing the true pyramid, thus preventing Messiah from coming back a second time. And obviously they're deceiving themselves. Now, let me kind of decode this thing. The, the Latin there basically can be translated, this is the way I prefer to translate it, and I've had several years of Latin, Anuit Chaptus Novus Ordo Seclorum. This year begins the new world order or the new order of the ages. And of course we know back in the, in the days of the first Bush administration, uh, was when we first started hearing the term New World Order as a buzzword. Well, it's been on our, our stationery, so to speak, for 200 years. But the New World Order is the goal of the Illuminati, basically. And that's why we need to get kind of nervous when our presidents start talking in that kind of Illuminati code. Uh, you'll notice there's all of these ranks of pyramid stones and you'll notice there's a Roman numeral at the bottom, which might be a little fuzzy for you to see, but trust me on this, you've probably looked at it yourself. If not, whip out a dollar bill and check me out. It's, it's the Roman numeral for 1776, the year 1776. And everybody says, well, that's understandable. That's the year America was founded. No, it wasn't. America was not founded. That's the year the Declaration of Independence was written, but it wasn't until several years after that that the you know, that the Constitution was put together, the Bill of Rights, the Continental Congress, all that stuff. That happened later. I'll tell you what started in 1776, the Illuminati. That was when, on May 1st, which is a high satanic holiday, 
uh, Adam Wieshaupt started the Illuminati in the year 1776. So when this thing says this year begins the New World Order, it isn't talking about the United States of America, unfortunately. It's talking about Illuminism in its current incarnation. Because as we've seen, it's been down to the centuries. Now to break this down still further, let's look at those individual ranks. What people don't understand is that when I say a rank on a pyramid, that in masonry means a layer of stones. So you've got an ever smaller layer of stones going up. And here's how it breaks down if you decode it. This represents the hierarchy, at least as it exists here in America. First of all, at the very bottom, you have just plain old Blue Lodge masonry. Then you have above that Scottish Rite or York Rite masonry. So far, this is stuff most people know about if they know anything at all about masonry in the United States. Then you have the shrine. And a lot of people don't realize some very nasty stuff goes into the shrine. I, I talk about that on my other tape, uh, The Light Behind Masonry. And uh, it, it's not the nice, benevolent organization people would like you to think. Then, once you become either the pinnacle of the York Rite, which is a Knight Templar, notice that the highest level of the York Rite is to be a Knight Templar, the highest level of the Scottish Rite is to be a 32nd degree Sublime Prince of the Royal Secret. Once you get to those two levels, then you can go into the shrine, and then if you're an extraordinary Mason, either because of political fame, because of some other sort of fame, because of economic clout, or maybe because of lifetimes of service to the Lodge, you might be eligible, a very small number, to become a 33rd degree Mason. That's a Grand Sovereign Inspector General. Don't you just love these titles? They're so humble. Anyway, so for example, a lot of times you'll see very famous people, uh, either captains of industry, politicians. You'd be amazed how many darlings of the conservative realm are 33rd degree Masons. Jesse Helm, Strom Thurmond, uh, Bob Dole, also in other fields, um, Norman Vincent Peale. That's why when people, you know, I've heard the joke, you know, I find Peale appalling and Paul appealing. <laughs> you know. Because Norman Vincent Peale is not even a Christian. I don't know if he's still, is he still alive? I forget. I think he may have even died. But anyway, the guy, I mean, I saw the guy years ago on Phil Donahue saying that the greatest spiritual experience he ever had was in a Buddhist temple in Japan. So I've got to worry about a guy like that, especially when he's continually endorsing masonry. Um, Roy Rogers, 33rd degree mason. Burl Ives, 33rd degree mason. When, the guy that founded Wendy's, Dave Thomas. Uh, lots of important people are 33rd degree masons. That, you see the kind of level of person you have to be. Uh, many presidents. I think the last president to be, I could be wrong, to be a 33rd degree mason was Harry Truman. MacArthur was a 33rd Mason too, Douglas MacArthur. So anyhow, this is the pinnacle of normal exoteric, in other words, out in the open for everybody to see, masonry. Now, above them is the Supreme Council of Grand Sovereign Inspectors General of the 33rd Degree. And they are the ones that sit in their temple in Washington, D.C., 13 blocks, notice that, from the White House. And it's from that temple that the spider spins its web, as far as most of what goes on in America is concerned. Above that, we've already mentioned, is the order of the trapezoid. That is the higher level of 
of street legal Satanism. Above that is the ancient primitive rite of Memphis and Mizraim, which has 97 degrees in it. That's the group of what I call Egyptian masonry, where I got up to 90th degree in. Above that is the Ordo Templi Orientis, the Order of Eastern Templars. And that was the occult sex magic group that Aleister Crowley was given reign over by Theodore Royce for the English-speaking world. Crowley was made the head of that. And that's interesting. I want to tell this story because this is important for what we're going to say in a minute. How did that happen? Well, Crowley was famous for writing sort of scatological poetry. He thought himself to be a great poet. Actually, most of his poetry kind of, you know, but anyway. Uh, he wrote this one poem in which he said, some, I may not be exact quote, but he said something to the effect, uh, let the mystic be armed with the mystic, no, the magician be armed with the mystic rood and the rosy cross. And that was, he privately, he was very rich because his father was a brewery guy who got, believe it or not, he, his father was a Plymouth Brethren. He got born again, became a Plymouth Brethren, sold his brewery, and then he used most of the money from selling his brewery because he didn't think as a Christian he should run a brewery, amen. And then he went around the country as a traveling preacher. And uh, Crowley used a lot of that money to self-publish his books because no one else would. And anyway, um, within a few days, there was a knock on his door. And Dr. Theodore Royce was standing there from Germany. And he said, how dare you reveal the highest secrets of the OTO in a printed publication? And Crowley goes, huh? And he points to that line that I just quoted. And see, that's a veiled reference to sexual magic which is what you are taught in the OTO. How to live forever through the rites of sex magic and sexual vampirism. Moving on, then we have the Palladium. This is commonly known as 34th degree, although that's an unofficial designation. I was in this. This is where you get into the Congress of Demons. Then above them, and I was talking about this somebody over the break, the Nine Unknown Men. These are people who are maybe marginally known among the circles in which they travel, but are basically not household names. And there's one of these men who reigns for the Illuminati over each continent. So there's one over North America, one over South America, one over Europe, one over Australia, etc., etc. And nothing happens in those countries of any significance without that unknown man's permission. And if something does happen of significance, the person that did it is in big, big doo-doo. Uh, two examples would be Kennedy and Nixon, both of whom were destroyed one way or another by the Illuminati because they did something the Illuminati didn't want them to do. So anyhow, there's a nine, there are nine unknown men, and they report directly to a group called the Seven. And the seven, I've never, I, I, I knew who the, nine, the unknown guy was for America at one time, but he passed away uh, back in the early 90s, and I don't know who replaced him, but uh, above them are these beings called the seven, and I was given to believe that they're fallen angels, that they are very high-level principalities, just like Paul talks about in Ephesians 6, verse 12. Uh, and they report directly to Lucifer the great architect of the universe, T-G-O-A-O-T-U. 
And of course, that's the all-seeing eye, the great architect of the universe. That is the outer name that Masons call their God, the great architect of the universe. Because remember, an architect doesn't create anything. A creator creates out of nothing. That's what Yahweh God does. But the architect is Lucifer. He thinks. So anyhow, this is a, this is a if you will, a blueprint of the hierarchy of Illuminism right on the back of our great seal. Now, isn't that wonderful? Now, sexual vampirism, Freemasonry, and the cult of the child. I've already alluded to sexual magic. Uh, right when I was involved in all this, this was relatively unknown. Now you can go into any Borders bookstore and buy books by various weirdo people about sex magic, or the term that's used for it in uh, Sanskrit in Hinduism is Tantra. Have you ever heard of Tantra Yoga? That's sexual magic. And this is the idea, excuse me, that you can reach divine consciousness through the sexual act. And there's two paths. Notice we're back to these two pillars again. There's the right pillar and the left pillar. The right pillar is called Mayathuna, and that's right-hand Tantra, and that's supposedly good. And then there's the left-hand pillar, which is Vamamarg, the left-hand path, which is supposedly female, lunar, and nasty. <laughs> so there's sexism even in that. And um, believe it or not, this stuff is alluded to even in the Entered Apprentice degree of Blue Lodge Masonry. This is, the, this is the secret, the royal secret that I'm about to tell you. And what I'm going to tell you is this. Part of the Masonic catechism that you have to learn as an entered apprentice uh, is you're asked, you know, why have you come here? And the answer is supposed to be to learn to subdue my passions and improve myself in masonry. Now that sounds noble enough. But you've got to understand what that means. See, right hand, right hand Tantra involves the man learning how to control his passions. And I don't know how explicitly you want to get here. I'll just tell you a supposedly true story about a Dalai Lama. You all know the Dalai Lama, right? You know, well, there's supposedly, you know, this succession of him that he's reincarnated into, which is, of course, hooey, but... The, one of the earlier Dalai Lamas was noted for being kind of a uh, man about town. He'd have many women come and visit him, even though he was a monk. And uh, finally, a bunch of the bigwigs in Tibet got together and decided they had to complain. So they went to the, to the Potala, which is the palace in Lhasa, where the Dalai Lama used to reside before the Chinese communists came in there. And they, he was standing on the roof of the Potala, and they came to him and they said, you know, holiness, this is not right. You can't be behaving like this. It's causing a scandal. You're, you're running around with all these women and everything. And what do you think he did? He walked over to the edge of the parapet of this palace, lifted his robes and proceeded to urinate over the palace. And the urine trickled down and, you know, did what urine does. And then it stopped in midstream and went back up, back into the urethra. And then he dropped his robes and he turned around and he said, when you can do that, you can presume to tell the Dalai Lama, Dalai Lama what to do. 
Now, that story is to conceal the secret of sexual magic, which is it's believed that two people, this is right hand now, and I, I don't want to get too explicit here, but to basically say this, when two people are having intercourse, it is believed that if the man can hold himself from having a complete experience and stay at a level of nearly there but without going over the top, that, that a huge amount of magical energy can be built up like a storage battery because you've got the two poles, the man and the woman, male, female, yin, yang, the whole bit. And then finally, after and, and there are there are Alan Watts, who is an Episcopal priest turned Buddhist monk, actually practiced this, where he could do this for five or six hours at a time with his wife. And at the end, when you finally release, then you're able to draw the fluids back in with the woman's fluids. And this is sexual alchemy. And they believe by doing this they will live forever by the mingling of the male and female seeds, uh, fluids, being drawn back into the male organ. And then the woman gets the same benefit. And, and, and this is interesting because if you study alchemy, there's many levels of alchemy, which is an, kind of an occult form of chemistry, if you will. And odd enough, there are Christian alchemists back in the days of the Protestant Reformation, even this very day, that practice it on a different level. But but all of the, look at, if you ever go into a drugstore sometimes and they have all of these old alchemical instruments sitting up on the shelf where they have their drugs, they all, if you look at them, they all have a sexual meaning. They all either look like, you know, you know, uterine symbols or phallic symbols. That's because this was a symbol of that. And this is, this is when they talk about things like the red lion and the white gluten and all these weird things in alchemy. This is what they're referring to. So the idea of being able to preserve to withhold your passions, quote-unquote. That was believed to be the key to living forever. And that's the promise that is held out to people that practice this kind of tantra, right-hand tantra. And um, it's reported, I don't know if this is true, that, that Alan Watts and his wife actually allowed themselves to be hooked up and tested with medical instruments when they were doing this. And, and they said by the time five hours had gone by, there was a visible light in the room where they were doing this because they were they had all these wires hooked up to them, you know like they do in hospitals and and they were measuring and it was it, he was able to maintain a level like that for five hours with his wife and and supposedly it brings a level of intimacy these people say which is totally unlike anything that normal sexual relations experiences so this is this is the good part the bad part is is Left hand path, the left hand path is believing that you don't have to do any of that stuff. That you just simply do, you know, sexual vampirism to be delicate about it. And here's where it gets really very disgusting because black magicians do this and they believe that they are pursuing the elixir of life, the philosopher's stone. Uh, you remember the Harry Potter book? The very first one, the Sorcerer's Stone, they called it in America. In Europe, in England, it was called the Philosopher's Stone. Because the Philosopher's Stone is this substance that you produce in alchemy that will enable you to live forever and have immortality. So, I need to back up. Let me explain this. 
This is, this is pretty nasty stuff. But these people believe that by, for example, having sex with a child, they can get more life energy than with an adult because a child has many, many years of life. And so that's why you have all of these supposed perverts running around as pedophiles. I'm not saying all of them know about this. Some of this are just some of them are just doing this because they're, you know, demon possessed of their eyeballs. But people within black magic do this because they believe that by vampirizing children sexually, that they will live forever. And they actually suck the life force out of the child whether male or female, doesn't matter, boy or girl. And this is obviously horribly nasty stuff. But it's why many people that get involved in masonry start finding themselves attracted to children. And there's another reason for this, which I'm going to get into in a minute. But this is something that, that is very, very abominable. But yet it's something that's really happening out there. And it's why... There's, there's, I think there's a cascade of events that have caused the epidemic of child sexual abuse in this country. Aleister Crowley, I've already mentioned him, he, was, he liked to call himself the wickedest man in the world. And he deliberately changed his name from Edward Alexander Crowley to Aleister Crowley because Aleister Crowley added up to 666 in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and English. Um, and he believed that he received a new revelation in 1904 called the Book of the Law, Liber Al-Valagis. And this Book of the Law is this short three-chapter scripture that's very blasphemous. It's highly anti-Christian, and it exalts a god named Hadith, a goddess named Nuit, and the crown and conquering child named Rehur Kuit or Horus. Now, see... He taught that there were two ages before this current one. There was the age of the goddess, Isis or Nuit. Then there was the age of the crown and, pardon me, the, the slain and risen god, which was Jesus or Osiris. And now it's time, in 1904 supposedly, for the slain and risen god to step down and for a new god to ascend the throne in the east. And this new god is Horus the crowned and conquering child. See, Horus is the child of Isis and Osiris. This is an image of Horus. He's the hawk-headed god. And I don't know how well you can see that, but he's basically portrayed there as having the head of a hawk and the body of a man. And he is to be the god of this new aeon, as Crowley said. Now, what's interesting is, is that Crowley believed he was the prophet. He was like John the Baptist to bring forth this new religion, which he called Crowleyanity. This guy had no problem with ego. And um, in fact, he's famous for making the statement that he believed the greatest spiritual experience any woman could ever have was to have sex with him, meaning Crowley. <laughs> so this guy obviously had an ego the size of, you know, Montana. But what happened is because of the magic he did, and he did several very powerful magical workings, the Cairo working in 1904 and the Almantra working in 1918 in New York City, that basically unleashed an entirely new strain of spiritual virus, which has since infected the world. And what is this virus? Well, it's the, the virus, I call it, of the fascinating child. That's the term he used. 
And, um, oh, don't want to go there yet. What, what I mean by that is since Crowley did all of these workings, and then what he did is he was one of the two people that put together the Book of Shadows of Wicca, which is white witchcraft. And so he inserted a lot of this stuff into white witchcraft. So when you started having Wiccans coming out of the woodwork a generation later in the 1950s, this was spreading. It was like a carrier wave that spread this virus that, where people were finding children sexually interesting all of a sudden. Because let's face it, what sort of a, a crazed individual looks as a young child, like one or two years old, as a sex object? I mean, you've got to be demon-possessed to your eyeballs. And all of these, all of these um, witches and Satanists and everything, they're all carriers of this virus, if you will. And unfortunately, when they rape someone, a child or an adult, they pass, remember, demons are the ultimate venereal disease. And condoms don't stop them. So, you know, when you're, when you're having sex with someone, you're having sex with everybody else they ever had sex with, to put it bluntly. Unless you pray to break ungodly soul ties, which we've done over and over again with people over the years. But otherwise... You know, we've had some people who had sex with a prostitute many years earlier. And they came to us for ministry and they were tormented by all of these sexual temptations, even though they were born again, even though they were trying their best. And we prayed and broke the link with that prostitute. Because think of all the people that prostitute was having sex with over the years. And just because, you know, you're married now and everything and you're a Christian, hallelujah, that doesn't mean that that stops unless you pray and ask that to be broken. So this is very, very dangerous, and I think this is partly why, uh, you know, it, it's become so rampant within Masonry that in the last few years they've actually had to start up a group, a support group for victims of Masonic sexual abuse and Masonic ritual abuse. It's called SMART, S-M-A-R-T, I forget what it stands for, but a guy named Neil Brick is running it. No, that's kind of an unfortunate name for someone who's running an anti-Masonic support group, but anyhow... Uh, and this is why I believe we're having these things happen today, you know, where there's just every other day you hear about some poor child being either kidnapped or raped or some horrible thing, and it's all laid at the foot of this energy that the Illuminati through Aleister Crowley have released into the world. It's the age of the crowned and conquering child, the age of the fascinating child. It's the age of Horus, and see, Horus... In his incarnation, you notice that name there at the top, Re-Hur-Kuit. He is a hawk-headed god of vengeance. He's a god of war, a god of desolation, and a god of destruction. And interestingly enough, Crowley himself identified Horus, Re-Hur-Kuit rather, as being related to Islam. And that's very interesting because there's a prophecy in the Book of the Law. I can't give you chapter and verse on it. I know you're all disappointed. But... I think it's in the third chapter where Horus says this, Rehur Kuit says this, I am the warrior lord of the 40s, and the 80s shall cower before me. Now, a lot of Thelemites, which I used to be a Thelemite as someone who believes in Crowley, it's from the word Thelema in Greek, which means will, because Crowley's cardinal rule was, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, love is the law, love under will. A lot of Thelemites believed Hitler was the warrior lord of the 40s. 
And Crowley himself, who was alive up until 1947, actually believed Hitler might be his new messiah. But the 80s will cower before me. And the 1980s, of course, what did they see? The rise of militant Islam. Starting with the Ayatollah Khomeini in the late, in the late 70s with the hostage crisis and all of that. 